Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. I'm going to read uh, the next couple of days of the creation account in Genesis 1. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, I'm in verse 14 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. and Let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after their kind, after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for uh, this account of your work. We thank you that you have made a world that is full of life, a world that is glorifying to you, a world that is useful to us, and a world that is delightful to us. Father, we pray as we consider the nature of the things that you've made, that you would help us to uh, be filled with joy and gratitude, that we would be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus, uh, by whom all things were made. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about the first phrase of Genesis 1, in the beginning. That's... uh, usually been understood, historically been understood, as the description of an absolute beginning of everything. That is to say, before this event, there is nothing but God. And then God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he goes through the process of forming earth that covers the six days of the creation account, leading into the climax of the seventh day. Uh, That interpretation has been disputed uh, on a number of grounds, grammatical grounds, sometimes on theological grounds. And the alternative reading is something like this. When God began creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Uh, What that does is move the phrase away from the idea that this is an absolute beginning in the beginning of all things, when there was nothing else, God created the heavens and the earth, to a time when God began to create. And it doesn't say anything on this interpretation. It doesn't say anything about whether some things existed prior to that beginning to create or not. So some have linked this to verse 2, 
the earth was formless and void in darkness over the surface of the deep. And the suggestion is made that before God began to create, there was a formless and void something, a kind of chaos. And then when God began to create the heavens and the earth, then he put lights in it and he formed it and he filled it. Uh, the interpreted, traditional interpretation that this is an absolute beginning, that is the origin of all things, is one of the bases for saying that creation is ex nihilo, creation is out of nothing. But if you say that uh, in the, when God began to create, if you take that interpretation, then that kind of weakens the case that this is describing creation out of nothing. You might say at some point before Genesis 1 begins, God made the stuff from which he would make the heavens of the earth. Maybe billions of years prior, he made the stuff, the formless void stuff that he's going to use to create the heavens of the earth. But uh, it existed prior, and now he's beginning, beginning to shape it and put it into the form that we know, the, the, the world that we are familiar with. I think that the grammar is actually in favor of the traditional interpretation. I won't go into the details of this. But I think not only does the grammar support the idea that this is an absolute beginning, in the beginning God created is the proper translation with the implication that before God, began, before God did this, there was nothing at all but God. Uh, but I think it's not only the grammar favors it, but it's uh, indicated by the way the, uh, the New Testament and other parts of the Bible speak about the world. In Romans 4, for example, Paul makes a passing reference to creation. Romans 4 is primarily about the faith of Abram. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. It's at the beginning of Romans 4. What he believes is the promise that he would have a seed. He hopes against hope. He's as good as dead. His wife is as good as dead. He's getting very old. His wife has been barren her whole life. And yet, Abram believes that God can bring life out of two dead people. And verse 17 of Romans 4 says this, uh, break into the middle. Uh, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, Abraham believed in resurrection. I mean, every time he looked at Isaac, his, his belief in resurrection was confirmed. Because Isaac is a resurrected child from the moment he exists. The God who gives life to the dead and calls or summons into being that which does not exist. He summons into existence what does not exist. That's obviously a reference to creation. The God who raises the dead is the God who can bring things out of nothing. And the contrast that Paul makes is a contrast between not existing, not being at all, and then God's call, his word, that summons things into being that didn't exist before. So in Romans 4.17, Paul is indicating the, the view that uh, the world is called into being. It doesn't exist at all. Creation is, in fact, ex nihilo. Uh, the creation of the heavens and the earth is ex nihilo. The creation of light is directly by the word. As I said, as we go through Genesis 1, we find that God is actually using the things that he makes as he makes them to make other things. He calls on the ground to bring up uh, grasses and fruit trees. He calls on the sea to teem with fish. He calls on the ground to bring up living souls, uh, the, the animals. So God eventually is using parts of the creation uh, to produce the things that he's making. But the origination of everything 
simply is the act of God's work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Augustine said, Genesis 1 is the act of the triune God. You've got the word, that's God. You've got the spirit, that's God. You've even got the beginning. That's God. Augustine is reading his Latin Bible. His Latin Bible says in principio. He might have been aware of the Greek. And arche. Then he goes over to the New Testament, to Colossians, and he finds, lo and behold, in a hymn, so-called hymn, celebrating Jesus as the creator of heavens and earth, as the one in whom all things consist, Jesus is called the Arche, the beginning of all things. In fact, Colossians, that hymn in Colossians, uh, is, seems to be a kind of a series of riffs on this phrase in the beginning. It's all the different titles that uh, Paul gives to Jesus are titles that could have originated from this phrase. Uh, so Augustine is, Augustine's, Augustine's point sounds kind of, uh, um, it, it doesn't sound plausible until you look at Colossians and you realize in the beginning is not just about when it happens, but it's about the one through whom it happens. That's a very plausible way to interpret it in the light of the New Testament. This same phrase is also used to describe the beginning of, of, of various kings' reigns. If you look in Jeremiah especially, chapters, I keep running into the wall behind me. Chapter, if I, if I flip over, somebody come get me. Jeremiah 26, 27, and 28, the first verse of each of those chapters is in the beginning of so-and-so's reign. So this is, this is, a, a, this is an absolute beginning. It may be a, a, a hint about the, the one in whom God makes all things, God creates all things. It could also be a sign that the Lord is bringing the world into being as a God of sovereign majesty, as a king. And I think that fits with the way that the original creation is described. In the beginning, what does God make? In the beginning, God makes the heavens and the earth. Two things. I don't think heavens and earth is just a, uh, a way of talking about everything. There, was, there are ways to say that without saying heavens and earth. The heavens and the earth are distinct realities, distinct zones of existence. The heavens that is spoken of in Genesis 1.1 is not the heavens that we see when we step outside, the blue dome of the sky, or the black dome at the night sky and the stars and moon above us. That's not the heavens, because that's not made until day two. I think the heavens that are referred to in Genesis 1-1 are the heavens, the highest heavens, the holy habitation of God. God creates, first of all, by making two zones. One, a created zone in which that he will inhabit, and then the earth beneath, that will be man's domain. That's what Genesis 1-1 is referring to. And I think that's the best guess that I can make about where the, where the hosts of heaven come from. Genesis 2-1 begins, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. When do we hear about the hosts of heaven? Perhaps it's the stars on day four. But I think it's also referring to the hosts of the highest heavens. The Bible uses the word heaven to describe different kinds of realities. There's the heaven of heavens. Uh, the heaven, heaven has a heaven. The sky has a heaven. Earth has a heaven. That's the sky. Sky has a heaven. That's God's dwelling place. Or maybe heaven of heavens is like holy of holies or song of songs. It's a superlative. The heaven of heavens where God dwells is the 
most heavenly heavens. It's the most heavenly place. We see a little glimpse of the heavenly place when we look up into the sky. But above that, beyond that, a place that we can't get to by, uh, by normal means of, uh, of movement, there is a higher heavens where God dwells. It's the heavens where John uh, ascends in, uh, in, uh, the, at the beginning of the book of Revelation. I think that's the heavens that God is making uh, in Genesis 1-1. He makes two zones, and then his focus the rest of the week is on earth. Notice the sequence in verses 1 and uh, 2. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void and dark. And he said, let there be light, and there is light on earth. He said, let there be a firmament to separate the waters on the earth. Let the waters be gathered so there is land and sea. Let the earth, the ground, spring forth with plants. Let the visible heavens be filled with the sun, moon, and stars. Everything in the creation week is focused on the zone that's described as earth in Genesis 1.1. And what is happening to earth, I think, is that earth is becoming more and more like heaven. Earth is being heavenized, if you will. And to see how that's the case, we have to think not just in Genesis 1, but think more widely about uh, what goes on in the rest of the Bible. What does John see, for example, when he gets up into heaven in Re Revelation 4? He sees a great sea, a throne, uh, uh, and the one enthroned. He sees myriads of angels. He sees living creatures that are surrounding the throne. There, on, uh, there are elders, presbyteroi. Heaven is Presbyterian. There's a presbyteroi in heaven. Uh, and on thrones around the throne. Um, of course, those thrones are vacated. And the, the, the presbyteroi, the elders uh, of heaven, throw their crowns down. So maybe they're seating, I don't know, to Anglicans. Maybe, maybe the Presbyterians in heaven are giving up their Presbyterianism when they get to heaven. No. Um, forget that. That's a distraction. Um, that's what he, he sees hosts, he sees a sea, he sees a throne above the sea, and that's what's being replicated on earth. He sees a, a dazzling glory. He sees the, the one enthroned is like gemstones shining and shimmering on the throne. It's a place of light, it's a place of life. It's a full place. And over the course of the creation week, God is making an earth that resembles that heaven. He's filling the earth with hosts, just as he filled the heavens with hosts, I think, uh, in the very first act of creating the heavens. But the angels don't come into existence like we do by reproducing. The angels are created at once, filling the heavens. They're the hosts of heavens, and by the end of the creation week, God has filled the earth with hosts, heavenly hosts, earthly hosts. Uh, the course of the creation week is the heavenizing of earth. Earth begins in darkness, and then on day one it's filled with light. You have this alternation of light and darkness that makes it somewhat like heaven. Heaven, we find out again in Revelation, is a place of endless light where there is, at least ultimately, there is no more sun, there is no more night. That's not what earth is yet, but we have a little glimpse of the light of heaven that's now replicated and, and evident on earth. In heaven, you have all these living creatures. Those, those are the cherubim. 
with four faces. And you have the presbyteroi, the elders that are on their thrones. And then you have myriads and myriads of, of angels that are surrounding the throne and praising the one on the throne. It's a full heaven. And over the course of the creation week, God fills earth, the earth that is originally empty. In heaven, there's a sea, and then there's a throne. And that's what God does on day, day three of the creation week. He separates the land from the sea. So when Adam sits, as it were, on his throne, he's sitting on a throne looking out over the sea as his father in heaven does. The one enthroned on the heavenly throne gazes out over a crystal sea, a heavenly sea. The creation is not brought into being in one single event, and it's not a single static reality. The creation week itself is a history of what God is doing. And what God is doing is gradually, day by day, step by step, making the earth more like heaven. You could say there is an eschatology already built into Genesis 1. We already see the trajectory of where everything is going from Genesis 1. We have to, we have to, you know, it helps to see the end of the story, of course. But once we see the end of the story, we can see that it's already happening in Genesis 1. Earth is already being made like heaven. And the Spirit is the one who's doing that. The Spirit is the one who comes from heaven, hovers over the water, moves over the surface of the waters. By the Word, God's speaking the Word, and by His Spirit, He's forming earth to become like heaven. And eventually, those two are just going to converge. We'll have a new heavens and new earth. The heavenly city is going to descend, and there's going to be a joining of heaven and earth. The firmament will be removed. But that trajectory is already beginning in Genesis 1. And the, uh, the aim of the creation, uh, of creation week and of the whole history of creation is for the earth to become like heaven. That's our aim. I mean, uh, the great leap forward in that respect is when the, uh, the heavenly son, the heavenly king, comes to earth and takes flesh and lives a life in the flesh, dies a death in the flesh, rises in glory to new life with a spiritual body, and you have a little lump of earth, the body of Jesus, heavenized, glorified, as a promise and pledge that all little plots of earth will eventually share in that glory. That's where everything is going. To the glory that Jesus already has, to the glory that he's bestowing on his bride, the glory that his bride will share fully at the end of all things. Creation already has this built-in eschatology to it. It's creation out of nothing. That's where I started. I leaped over my notes there and got into point number two. It's a creation out of nothing. What does that mean? It means that there's nothing but God prior to the creation. It doesn't mean that there is some very, very, very thin, wispy stuff that we can call nothing that God uses to create the world. That, that, that nothing is a kind of something. You'll find some theologians that talk like that. But there is the nothing. So does anybody watch The NeverEnding Story anymore? Anybody watch that film? Oh uh, yeah, people my age do. do any? <laughs> <laughs> Do any young people watch it? Never ending story. There is the nothing. 
the nothing is gobbling up and dissolving everything. There's always this threat that the nothing is going to come back and that all things that are something are going to be dissolved into the nothing. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's crude. No, no theologian will say that. But there are theologians that talk about the nothing as if it were that. That's not what it's talking about. It's simply that there is absolutely nothing until God creates the heavens and the earth and then begins to speak and make and place and uh, summon things from the creation. That's very different from the way that other ancient peoples imagined the formation of, of reality. In every myth, there is always a something before the creator gets to work. The creator doesn't bring heavens and earth into being out of nothing. He d he's not a God who summons that which is not so that it is. There's always some kind of, cre uh, there's always some kind of chaos there's always some kind of dangerous element that he has to master and control and often defeat. Many ancient myths are battle myths. Creation myths are battle myths because the God has to take control of an often feminine chaos and, and impose his masculine order on the feminine chaos. That's kind of the movement of Hesiod's Theogony. That's uh, 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 an ancient Greek account of the origins of the cosmos. Uh, and the origin is, is a feminine being. Then eventually Zeus triumphs. And Zeus kind of takes on some of the best of the feminine characteristics. But it's Zeus that takes over. Nothing like that in Genesis 1, although some, sometimes people try to find that in Genesis 1. Elohim has no opponents. Elohim has no opposition. There is no war. There's no battle. Everything comes into existence peaceably by the power of the word of Elohim and by the power of his spirit. That, that's a, uh, that's a, a huge shift from that ancient idea that creation comes into being by chaos. If you think it comes into being by chaos, then you're constantly worried about the nothing coming back. Maybe the chaos will re-swallow everything, and all the order that we know will be brought back into chaos. If the world came into being by a battle against chaos, then war and violence are of the essence of reality. There's no way we can get away from them. One theologian has talked about this as an ontology of violence. Ontology refers to the being of things, the, 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 the nature of things at their most, most basic form. And if God had to battle things to put them in shape, then violence is just written into the nature of things and will never be free from violence as long as we're creatures. The only, the only way to be free from violence is to somehow break the barrier between ourselves and the creator can't do that. I mean, that's, that's the aspiration, is to get out of this world of violence and battle and warfare and find our way, find our path back to the peaceableness of the, of the one who is the creator. God creates a world peaceably, uh, creates a world that was, was at peace, and that means a world that can yet be at peace in the future, a world in which he can make peace, violence, evil, 
is an intrusion into a world at peace. That's what creation ex nihilo implies. Creation ex nihilo implies also that creation is utterly and entirely a matter of gift. Creation is a gift. <coughs> it's a weird kind of gift. When you give your, gift, your, give your children gifts for your birthdays and Christmas, I assume that your children already exist for you to give the gifts to. I imagine none of you has wrapped up a Christmas gift, put it under the tree, and that gift caused a child to materialize. They exist first. Not creation, not your existence. Your existence is absolutely a free gift of the creator. Everything around us, not just in its permanent structures and movements, but every moment of creation, every moment of your life, all of the processes that are going on in your body right now that keep you alive, that you have no consciousness of, every last one of them depends on the gift of existence and the ongoing gift of life that God gives you. You are utterly dependent on that gift that might feel threatening. You'd rather have a little more independence. You'd rather have a little more control. You don't. <laughs> None. None. Because it all comes from God. Every last bit of it. Every breath. Every beat of your heart. Every time there's some kind of chemical exchange in your, in your digestion or your brain. You know, the kind of things that was going on with our digestive noises that our speakers were making. All, every bit of it is a gift on which you are utterly and completely dependent. It's the kind of gift that brings the recipient into existence. Let there be light. He's not talking to a light source. He's not doing a magic trick with a candle. Let there be light. There is no light, and then there is light. He brings it into being, utterly dependent, utterly receptive. Which means also that God has created a world in which, um, uh, uh, in which we are uh, fundamentally related to Him and to everything else. We tend, we, we, I think, we have an instinct for thinking that uh, maybe, maybe it's a, a particularly modern instinct. I don't know. We have an instinct for thinking that things exist and then they kind of assemble into relationships. Kind of like if you're familiar with the uh, social contract ideas of the formation of governments. First you have these isolated bunch of individuals. Somehow they can communicate with, that, with each other. How? We don't know. You have these isolated individuals who find out that they can get along better if they band together. They have to give up some of their powers to a state. But that's better than the, the brutish life solitary, brutish, and short life that they have by themselves. That's, that's the way we might think. That's not the way the world is. Relation is fundamental. I, I, I thought of this many years ago. I mean, it wasn't the first time I thought of it, but it came home to me. 
powerfully on many years ago when I was holding our second daughter, Emma. Uh, she was one and a half or so. I was holding her in front of a mirror. And I realized that her eyes were directed at me in the mirror. She recognized me. She did not recognize Emma. <laughs> she didn't know who that was. She didn't, didn't even pay attention to it. And you know this with very little children. You know, they're crawling across the floor, they roll over, and their hand kind of twitches in front of them, and they, they look startled. Where, a disembodied hand just flew by me. Where'd that come from? They don't have a consciousness of the limits of their own bodies. But they know their mother. And they can know their dad. They can know their mother better. But they can know their dad. And they know other people. They're in relation much far sooner. They're already existing, of course. I'm not saying they, they come into being simply because people are looking at them. But uh, they exist, but they don't have any consciousness of themselves, and they come to consciousness of themselves only because of prior relations with others. Yeah, we learn to talk. I mean, that's how we learn to talk. Learn to communicate because other people talk to us. Parent, parents don't wait around for your kids. Eh, you know, if he's going to talk. Gonna have to start. I'm not gonna talk to him. He's gonna have to make the first move. He's never gonna make the first move. They can talk back only if you talk to them first. Our existence as human beings, the existence of everything, is radically and fundamentally an, a, an existence of relationship between God and creation fundamentally, and then all the various infinitely complex networks of creation that we depend on. Creation is self-giving. The world gives itself because it's created by a God who gives himself in creating and in redeeming. Uh, let me say a few things. These are kind of scattered notes. I'm going to say I covered creation by word even though I really didn't. A few scattered notes that, uh, of things that Genesis 1 tells us that I think are worth considering as, as we think about the nature of the world, and particularly as we think, try to think in kind of scientific terms about the nature of reality. I think Genesis actually gives us insight into that. Um, first, simple thing. God makes things. God makes things. Let there be vegetation from the earth. Let the waters teem with swimming things and let flying things multiply on the earth. He makes cattle, domesticated animals, and wild animals, beasts, and creeping things. What we find in Genesis 1 is not components of things that God later assembles. We can disassemble things into the component parts and kind of figure out how they work. That's the way a lot of science, modern science has operated. We dissect in order to understand more fully. You can certainly do that. But in Genesis 1, it's the thing itself that's the focus of God's attention, that's the focus of God's creative activity. It's worth thinking about what would science look like? What would biology look like if our focus was not on dissection and taking things apart to figure out how they work, but equally on the fully formed organism? Would our science look different if our science was a science of organisms rather than parts? 
God creates things and sets them in environments. In fact, they're defined by their environments. What's the difference between a swimming thing and a beast? Uh, what's the difference between a flying thing and a beast? Now, the Bible doesn't classify things by reproductive, by reproduction. The Bible talks about bats when it's talking about birds. And again, people mock it. But yeah, I mean, if you if you had never seen a bat before, you saw this thing kind of flitting around in the night in the evening sky, you think, that's oh, a weird kind of bird. It flies. So you classify it because it occupies the air. And certain kinds of land creatures occupy the wild spaces of the earth. Certain kinds of, certain kinds of land creatures are cattle. That's a different word. That's the word behemoth or behemoth, behemoth in the Hebrew. Those are cattle. Those are domesticated. I think they're domesticated from the beginning. God created some animals to be domesticated, already domesticated. And then there's these other wild animals that man is eventually to domesticate. But some are already in his zone of All the creatures are defined by their environment, not by their stage of reproduction. It's a swimming thing. It's a fish. Even if it gives birth, live birth to its young, or if it lays eggs, it's still considered a fish. It's a swimming thing. If it flies, it's a flying thing. If it lives close to man, then it's a cattle. If it lives distant, then it's a beast, a wild beast. Things are identified by their environments. That, again, might give us a different kind of biology, one that's more like uh, environmental biology. Because it's, it's not just you're identifying the creatures by that environment, but if you want to understand the creature, you have to understand not only the creature in isolation, but the creature in his environment in his spatial environment and in his association with other creatures. And one last point, this will, all your pet lovers will like this. When God creates things in the, in the sea, he says that the waters teem with swarms of living souls. Nefesh chaya, Genesis 1.20. When he gets to land animals, Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth nefesh chaya, nefeshim, living souls after their kind. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a nefesh chaya, a living soul. It's exactly the same phrase, it's plural, in Genesis 1, but it's the same phrase that describes man as a living being or a living creature. Fish, land animals, in Genesis 2, eventually birds are also classified under that heading. I tend to think that souls are distinctly human realities, but in the Bible, frequently, soul is something that's shared by all mobile beings, all things that, all things that, can, that are self-moving, uh, things that live by their desires, that are moved by their desires. Soul is the seat of desire. More than it's more often than it's the seat of thought. Hunger is in the soul. Thirst is in the soul. Sexual desire is a desire of the soul in the in the Bible. Uh, man, I'm not trying to blur the distinction between man and animals. Man is created in the image of God, and animals aren't. That's what makes him distinctive. It's not the fact that he is or has a soul that makes him distinctive. 
So I, I, that, uh, you can say that soul refers to those kind of basic realities of all living creatures, capacity for self-movement, desire. But for human beings, of course, soul also involves decision-making thought. That soul is used in those kind of contexts also. At this point, I think we have to say there's a certain kind of continuum between man and animals. It's not to, not to say that man is, has nothing unique. He's the image of God. But there's a continuum between man and animals. Your dog, your cat, uh, have my doubt about cats, but your dog, for sure, has a soul, <laughs> is a soul. Uh, that means it desires, it can move itself, but it also means that it can think, it can consider. I don't think animals just react by instinct. Animals have uh, purposes that they try to fulfill. And when those purposes are blocked, they find out what other ways to do it. If a, if a bird is building a nest and it can't find the right kind of materials, it finds what's available. It's not what he was looking for, but he finds something that'll work. If one thing doesn't work, he goes and tries to find something else. Or she, I don't know which birds, which sex of bird is building the nest. I think, I think the male usually. Uh, animals have purposes, animal, animals have intentions, animals have personality. Again, you pet lovers know this. Again, with appropriate qualifications for cats, uh, your pets have personalities. Your dog does. Cats, I guess, have personalities, but they're, um, they're uh, proud, haughty personalities, not the uh, serviceable, uh, eager, eager to please personality that you find in the dog. You can get to know your dog. You can name your dog. Ever think about how amazing that is? That you can call your dog and your dog comes to you? You've established something like a personal relationship with your dog. I think the Bible supports that experience. We all, we all know that experience as if we've been around animals at all. We know that experience, but I think the Bible supports that understanding of animals. And I think that also doesn't mean that uh, we can't eat animals. The Bible that talks about animals as living souls also talks about draining the blood and then eating the animal because the soul is in the blood. We can't, it doesn't mean that we can't eat them. It doesn't mean we can't use them and put them to work for us. But it does establish a certain kind of relationship with animals. Dominion can't mean beating up on the animals because they are living souls. It can't mean just abusing animals for our own purposes because they're living souls. They're God's creatures. God loves them. God cares for them. God feeds them. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. That's the kind of world we live in. We live in a world with, that we rule as human beings, but we also live in a world that's full of other kinds of creatures that we can react and interact with that have certain kinds of relations to us. And the fundamental thing I want to communicate again, I reiterate it. Uh, the kind of world we live in, given the fact that creation is, is ex nihilo, that God summons a world into being that did not exist before, uh, a world that he does not need, a world, you could say, from which he derives nothing essential to himself, means that the world is utterly and entirely gift. And our lives have to be utterly and entirely 
from top to bottom, inside and out, have to be lives of gratitude. Because we are nothing but recipients of gift. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you are a generous, kind, and giving God. You've given us existence. You've given us the particular existence that we enjoy. Thank you that you've made a world that is full of wonders, beauty, that's full of creatures that we can come to know, come to understand, creatures that are useful for us and creatures that also delight us. Father, we pray that as we consider these things, you would help us to be more faithful in living in the world that you created. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Dot com.